Artistic Whispers Productions presents... Down from 10, a country house mystery written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net. Featuring the vocal talents of... Philippa Ballantyne. T. Morris. Kitty Nakian. Nathan Lowell. Miss Calendar. Nobilis Reed. Christiana Ellis. Chris Lester. With original music by Danny Shade. This podcast contains adult language, sexual situations, and bizarre humor. Listener discretion is advised. With dust upon the picture frames and snow outside the window panes, the nighttime voices whisper fear, a demon's words out in the clear. You can make the whole world end if you but count down from ten. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two. Chapter one. E minus ten. Afternoon. The heavy clouds hung low on the horizon. Or, rather, as the road rose ever higher into the Sierra, they looked progressively lower and angrier. The valley farmlands and the high desert before that endured the moistureless air of the freezing winter drought. The clouds spilling in over the coastal foothills were a welcome harbinger. From the mountains, however, the view was different. The Volvo, still smart-looking and factory-fresh despite its 400,000 miles and almost a decade's worth of service, wended its way between the hundred-year-old pines, past the spires of igneous rock, through the long, bowl-shaped valleys carved by their glacial past. At the vista points that dotted the high road every few dozen miles, the view of the roiling thunderheads grew progressively more worrisome. Standing in his gray duster and felt hat, his red University of Paris muffler streaming behind him in the biting wind, dressed shoes to shoulders in a hand-tailored wool suit, Gerard Falkstein looked out over the hills of the San Joaquin Valley with a sense of foreboding. The crumpled invitation gripped between the fingers of his lambswool glove suffered four visits to the dustbin before he'd finally given in, retrieved it, and looked up the directions to the new locale. For the last six years, the first week of January meant to drive up to Big Bear to spend ten days in a rented cabin with an extraordinary group of people. Ten days of rest from the travails of grading papers, fighting with journal editors, suffering through staff meetings, and the entire life overshadowed by the bright and shiny soullessness of the Las Vegas skyline. But that life was over now, and the retreat had always been part of that life. No matter how restful it had always been, it seemed wrong, somehow, to carry it over into his new life. Gerd folded the piece of paper and put it into his pocket, then pulled his hat low against the retreating sun and returned to his car. Growing up in Europe, most of what he'd known of California had been its beaches, stuffed to bursting with an unlikely mixture of computer geeks and bikini-clad surfer girls roasting under a cloudless sky, and merrily pickling their livers in Everclear and Corona. Now, almost 20 years into his alien residency, most of them spent in California and Nevada, he could count on one hand the number of times he'd been to the coast on a sunny day. 
The mountains were the state's defining feature. There were very few places in California you could look in any direction on a clear day without finding the horizon blocked by distant hills or distant mountains of some kind. The winding road stretched on endlessly in front of him. Having never been to this part of California, he really didn't know how much longer it would take him to arrive. Satellite photos and online directions never had given him a good sense of what things looked and felt like on the ground, and already he'd burned through the audiobooks of Inferno and Purgatorio. As the final 50 miles rolled by like a forest breeze, Gerd found himself relieved that he had decided to attend. If the event had been at Big Bear again, he was sure he wouldn't have come. There was too much there to remind him of the life he was just leaving behind. This way, perhaps, the retreat would feel more like a christening than a wake. The chateau, technically it was a mansion being stuck as it was in the middle of the far end of the American West, lay hidden at the end of a narrow driveway turning off the main highway and falling down a half dozen meters into a flat, wide lot cut out of the side of the mountain. The gaudy front looked like something dreamt up by Picasso for a class assignment in Tudor architecture, and the high eaves from the second story cantilevered sharply out over the circular car park in front of the garage. It looked like it could comfortably house 30, and yet Carol had said in her email last month, when she finally moved in, that it felt homey and intimate. Since her idea of intimate was one that he found delightfully unconventional, he reserved judgment until he saw the inside. Gerd took the available spot closest to the door and extricated himself from his automobile's leather embrace, the cold wind biting at his face as he mashed the fedora down over his brow. Overhead, the sky's blue had deepened just enough for stars familiar to city dwellers to begin peeking through. In another hour, it would be littered with celestial glitter, the likes of which urbanites never saw, though he didn't trust it to remain that way for long. He took his overnight bag and his laptop satchel from the back seat and thoughtlessly pushed the driver's door shut. The white light of the day was hastening towards yellow as the sun filtered through the storm clouds away on the far western horizon, and Gerd found he had to turn his collar up and pull his hat down against the cold wind flowing off the mountain as he scampered the ten meters up the walk to the front door. It wasn't locked. The brass latch lifted easily and the heavy black oak slab swung inwards, catching on a stop and holding itself open for his entrance. The rush of warm air and the din both blasted him in the face as he stepped inside. Somewhere, buried under the layers of conversation, he heard someone plucking at a guitar and a young woman singing a desultory rendition of Wild Mountain Time. He'd been right to reserve judgment. Carol's tastes were, as ever, impeccable. The foyer was nearly covered in frames. Photographs of past adventures, past retreats, and art experiments hung proudly next to prints from Bergerot and Waterhouse, while along the vaulted ceiling hung small chandeliers, sized just right to make the roof seem much farther away than it actually was. Gerd stopped at the rack and doffed his hat and coat, hanging them smartly next to the others already there. Kevin's unmistakable black leather sport coat, Carol's neo-Victorian overcoat, Sarah's dreamcatcher knit shawl, Katie's motorcycle leathers, and two he didn't recognize, a basic brown frock and a tan bomber jacket. As he hung his things, he tripped the stop with his foot and let the door swing closed again. 
Next to the rack hung an old stained sepia portrait of a stately blonde in an underbust corset holding a riding crop, her left foot resting elegantly on an ottoman as if she was waiting to have her toes polished by an eager shoeshine boy. The casual observer might have pegged it as a kitschy use of Victorian porn, but anyone who knew Carol would recognize her in the photo, and the unmistakable message it conveyed. The mistress of the house welcomes you. Behave. Those words had featured in Carol's opening remarks every year since Gerd could remember. The whole place screamed Carol. The tasteful decadence, the constant play at overload and degeneracy, combined with the flawless use of space and proportion. Yes, he decided, it would be a christening, and not a wake. It would be a good thing. Gerd picked up his bags, counted down from ten, and strode forward into the living room. The nerve center of the house, a living, breathing museum, yawned before him. Every surface featured a sculpture. Every wall sported paintings and photographs opening windows into neighboring worlds. Psyche and Eros in one, the water nymphs in another, Conan against the giant serpent, the eagle nebula. The great room felt like Wonderland's annex. Gerd stood upon the threshold of ten days in a world where the regular rules of reality didn't apply. To his left, in the conversation pit arrayed around the fireplace, Kevin sat at the end of the couch with his right leg crossed over his left, supporting a sketch pad. From his vantage point, Gerd could see the edges of a rough charcoal sketch emerging from under the lanky, bookish man's careful fingers. Just in front of Kevin, a figure in blue coveralls crouched next to a water bucket. The clothing and angle hid face and gender, but there was only one person it could be, and when the figure stood, he recognized the severe, almost mannishly Japanese face of their resident sculptor. Katie straightened her coveralls with her gloved hands and caught Gerd's eye. She nodded a curt hello and turned her attention back to Kevin's sketch subject. The lady of the house stood on a stool in the middle of the conversation pit with her back to Gerd. Plaster bandages clung around her body from ankles to collarbone. Loose straps hung over her shoulders, wrapped just around the wide point of her ribs, and pinched in down her legs from either side, framing the tattoo of a reticulated python weaving its way down her spine from her neck to her hips. Katie walked around to Carol's front and exchanged some quiet words with her. Gerd cleared his throat. Bonjour. Anyone home? Carol's body was held immobile by the bandages, but her head snapped around as far as it could. When her eyes lit on him, she beamed. Gerd, welcome home. She looked apologetically down at her mummified body. Uh, I'll be with you in a minute. Do not worry, Charie. I will keep. Gerd set his bags down and leaned against the corner where the entryway met the great room, breathing in the scents of old books and new plaster mixed with the garlic and rosemary wafting out of the kitchen. Katie peered out from behind the mummified hostess. Kevin, give us a hand? Kevin, his eyes fixed to his drawing, seemed not to hear her. Katie waved her hands to get his attention. Kevin, move your tukas, muchacho. We gotta get the dragon lady off her pedestal. Oh, Kevin jolted, a bit like a startled rabbit, then set his pad and charcoal down on the end table and rolled himself up to his feet. Sure, sorry. Gracias. 
Grab here. Katie tapped her knuckles on Carol's ribs under her right arm. And here. She tapped on the inside of Carol's thigh, the knocking sound from the hard plaster reaching Garrett over the rest of the din. Kevin took his position, then grinned mischievously and snaked his hand up from Carol's thigh and grabbed a handful of her exposed rebondi. Carol tilted her head down at him. Garrett couldn't see her expression, but her condescending amusement echoed across the cavernous room towards him like music. <laughs> down, boy. Unless you really mean it. Who says I don't? Don't bullshit me, child. I know you just want me for your drawings. Underlay! Kevin moved his hand back to its hold on Carol's thigh. I'm ready, Katie. Give me the count. Katie grabbed the corresponding points on Carol's left side. On the count of three, gringo. You can gringo my big toe, Nipper. You want to see some nipping toting? Uno, dos, tres. They both lifted in concert and stepped forward, bringing Carol down to rest on the tarpaulin covering the carpet. Hook your fingers under the edge. Right, start at the ankle. Get ready to step back slow, Mamma Mia. Say when. When. Slowly. Twist. There. Katie guided Carol's ankle out of the cast, carefully peeling the plaster away from Carol's body as it won its way free. Carol twisted and turned a little bit at a time, pulling her skin away from the bandages without hurting the cast. She stepped backwards and twisted the other half of her body, peeling away and turning to face Garrett as she did so. The Vaseline that coated her, protection from Katie's latest experiment, was flecked everywhere by plaster dust, giving her normally pale skin the pallor of the grave. But this was Carol, and Carol could make a corpse look insufficiently austere if she put her mind to it. She smiled at him as if the years since they'd last seen one another hadn't ever intervened. Gerd straightened up to receive her as she grabbed a towel and squeezed between Katie and Kevin, narrowly missing them both. She hurtled the side of the couch and bounded up to him as if she intended to knock him over with a kiss, but when she got near, she skittered to a halt. She looked down at her body, covered from head to toe in petroleum jelly, then over to his obviously tailored suit. Gerd reached out for her, but stopped when she held her arms out helplessly and raised an apologetic eyebrow. Since she'd already beaten him to the eyebrow lift, the best he could manage was a hopeless shrug. Sorry, this stuff gets everywhere. Carol looked over Gerd's suit again, then draped a towel across her breasts and shoulders like a barber's bib. Uh, this ought to work. Let's see. Very deliberately, she stepped up to him and raised herself on her toes, her impressive height still dwarfed by his 190 centimeters. She carefully took his head in her hands, making sure not to touch his suit with her skin, and pulled his face to hers. Gerd found her hips, and he held her awkwardly and kissed her like a sailor too long at sea, losing himself in the finest welcome he could have asked for. The last of his reservations about coming melted away like so much summer frost, and he nearly forgot his suit. And so it begins! Gerd pulled away from Carol and looked up at the spindly physicist reclining nonchalantly against the back of the longer sofa. The eternal love vest for the select few. Carol looked back at him with mock reproach. I didn't hear you complain when you got here. Well, that's when I thought you had taste. Kevin had a long, dour face that his students must have thought humorless. His smile looked as if it might break something. Gerd squeezed Carol as best he could without getting grease all over himself, then let her go. It is good to be back. Tell me, Cherie, am I the last? <laughs> Not remotely, dear. Sarah's friend Jeremiah had a thing tonight, a fundraiser of some kind. He emceed a biotech rally for Greenpeace. Ah, Sarah. 
Garrett should have expected she would bring the music. Kevin looked markedly unamused. God save us. You invited this guy? Someone has to give the scary professor a run for his money. Sarah's guitar strummed a chord of doom, just for emphasis. Run for my money? Sounds like more of a leisurely but annoying walk for a penny. Ah, Kevin, my friend. Gerd reached down and took hold of his bags. Your unmatchable wit with the English language is impossible to describe without using words like dim. No welcome kisses for you, buddy. Kevin's sour sardonicism was in full bloom like a tuba in a violin concerto. But his broad grin and the sparkle in his eyes brought him right into the symphony. And this guy's Sarah invited. An activist right from a rally? He'll be on his genetically unmanipulated soapbox all week. Oh, behave yourself. I'm going to have enough problems with him without your help. Carol crossed her arms over her chest like a displeased, if underdressed, British nanny. Oui, oui, très apologie. Where may I find my room, chérie? It's second on the right from the top of the stairs. Here. She took his laptop and overnight bag from him. I'll drop them off in your room. Oh, I've got to go shower this goop off. Alas, I had cultivated the desire for greased turkey just now. Carol shifted his laptop from her left hand to her right hand and made as if to hit him playfully. Whoa, whoa. Stains, my chérie. Fine. You're right. Would someone hit him for me, please? Before Carol finished asking, a throw pillow rocketed from Katie's fist and struck Gerd soundly in the shoulder. Thank you, sweetie. Katie shrugged her shoulders and peeled her nitrile gloves off, brushing her hands together as if putting to rest a job well done. De nada, senorita. Well, good. Food's in the kitchen. Spa's in the solarium. <laughs> Don't get lost. She winked at him and pranced off to the staircase, almost dancing, her body navigating easily around the furniture without giving it a second look. Her movements were always precise and easy, effortless as an escaped kite gliding on the wind. No, Carol. I will not get lost here. The singing in the room near the stairs started up again. Sarah, playing Scottish folk songs. Gerd stirred his lumbering frame from his reverie and started off to follow the music, but before he'd gone five steps, Katie collided with him from the side. Hey, hey, hey! Despite being half his size, she easily caught him around the neck and hugged him for dear life. You can't get away that easy, old man. She pecked him lightly on the lips. I've been trying to get a hold of you for two months now. I'm sorry, I know. I've been busy. Busy didn't begin to describe the merde storm he'd unleashed at the end of the last semester, before he'd announced his retirement. Busy? You're certifiable. She let go of him and stepped back so she could see his face without craning her neck, looking him over from head to foot and shaking her head. How did you ever think you would get away with it? She reached up and loosened her do-rag, letting her close-cropped A-line hair fall loose across her face. Kuhn is gospel. Or don't you read the canons of your own profession? She sat down in a wing-back chair and threw her shoeless feet up on the end table, gesturing insistently at the couch opposite her. Did you really want to get into the whole thing now, so soon after arriving? Maybe not. But this was Katie, and she made up for in persistence what she lacked in stature. Gerd sighed, admitting defeat, and sat down in the deep leather opposite her. She shifted her feet to his lap, and he obligingly picked up her left and started to massage the knot in her arch. Nice. So, how'd my favorite fossil become a heretic? He read the paper. She smirked at him, as if only a very silly European would ask such a question. Well then, Katie did. You know, 
every field needs a revolution now and again, no? She shook her head. They are going to guillotine you. From the other room, Sarah's voice slid over the melody as easily as the notes slipped through the air. It helped mark out the new venue as sacred space. Despite his retreading of all the recent drama, Gerd felt the weight of the road and the last few months lift from him as he and Katie spoke. Academic politics were, after all, a thing of the past. He'd said his piece, and now he was up here in the rarefied air. The concerns of the university already seemed obsolete. Or, as Katie put it, It's just a babbling of crusty fuckers that are almost as full of shit as you are. A christening, yes. Most assuredly. As much as Sarah's music echoing airily would have marked the house as sacred for Gerd, in the kitchen it saturated the air like a coffeehouse concert. Amos Maple, a newcomer to the week's festivities, wielded his knife against a defenseless pile of onion slices, providing a rhythmic counterpoint in attempting to get a measure of the woman making the music. As he chopped, he studied her. Slight, delicate, and built like the dancer she'd once been, Sarah sat cross-legged on the island in front of him, filling the room with her easy melody. Amos hadn't known her long. He'd met her maybe four times in his life, all of them because she and Carol happened to be in the same place at the same time. Normally, she was effervescent, bouncing all about the room like a hyperkinetic hyrax, so her meditative air as she made love to the guitar fascinated him. It seemed out of character somehow. Not that he had much time to ponder at the moment, not when his old friend Adele Sirhan was bustling about the kitchen, wrangling an impressive spread of food while arguing the finer points of aesthetics with him. She'd just finished catching him up on her latest adventures in her shadow career as a figure photographer, then ducked out of the room to grab another can of chicken broth before he had a chance to respond. The clamor of the ringing egg timer brought Adele's careworn face back out of the pantry, her flannel-clad torso deftly dodged around the island and to the oven, where she attacked the can of broth with an opener. So why aren't you out there taking pictures of the casting? Amos picked up the conversation where it had left off when Adele ducked out. Plenty of time after everyone's fed. Where did I put the... Amos took a half-step back, reached behind his head, and grabbed an oven mitt from its hook on the stove hood without looking. As Adele cast about for the one she had mislaid, he dangled the mitt from its eye loop. Caught up in her quest for the missing potholder, she didn't look up at him until he whistled. Oh, you... She snatched the oven mitt from his grasp and hit him on the arm with it. Thanks a lot. Uh, here we go. All done. Adele pulled a tray of beets out of the oven. She laid it down on the counter and poked one of the beet slices with her fork. Beets? What are we, Russian? What do you think, my pretty? Adele cut the corner of a beet and skewered it, bringing it up to her mouth and blowing on it, before she popped it in to sample. She nodded her head and shrugged, as if she didn't know quite what to make of them. Looks like I think the same thing as you. They're beets. They're for Jeremiah. Gotta have something for him to eat. Sarah pulled her long, loose brown hair up into a bun, then returned to finger-picking Celtic ditties on her six-string. And you work with this guy? Everybody's got their vices. Sarah winked at him. Bodice ripper. She had him there. He finished up the onions with a flourish and set the knife down, then brushed them into a pan containing an ostensibly edible stew-like substance. As vices go, abstinence is the most destructive one. 
and the most annoying. Amos ducked into the fridge and grabbed a Guinness. He meant to crack it open with his bare hands to punctuate his point, but the Einstein who'd bought them had gotten the ones without the twist tops. Oh, that's hardly fair. Adele snatched the bottle from between Amos's fumbling fingers and turned her back on him. His mouth watered as he heard the unmistakable wet crunch of the top opening. Hardly fair? What about stealing a man's beer? Poor baby. Adele turned back to him and presented him with a pint glass filled with his stout. Feel better? Much. Thank you. He took a swig and braced himself for Adele's rhetorical buffeting. You're welcome. So look, thousands of people throughout history have devoted themselves to lives of abstinence and service. Monks, nuns, you can hardly say that's destructive or annoying. She's right, Scribbler. Look at Mother Teresa. Oh, God. Mother Teresa. He should have known someone would bring up that old bat. Amos tilted his head towards the ceiling, pretending to beg the space aliens to bring enlightenment quickly, before he lost his patience. He didn't notice the improbably large shadow looming in the doorway to his left. What? Sarah wasn't letting it go. She was a positive force. Yeah, for advancing suffering in the world. She didn't even believe in the god she told suffering people to trust instead of medicine. Forget Mother Teresa. Ever known someone who's been to Catholic school? Ever heard of the Magdalene Sisters? Or the Tamil Tigers? Amos took another glug from his pint glass to emphasize the point. He was going out on a limb a little, trusting Carol's word that the retreat was a place where he could let it all hang out without worrying about stomping on toes, and that was why he'd come. Besides, Adele and Sarah were both woman enough to stand up for themselves in an intellectual fencing match. The Tamil Tigers weren't more nasty. Amos jumped, spilling his beer as the thick French accent rolled through the kitchen from behind him. The new arrival? And you can't equate not eating meat with terrorism, Amos. Sarah chided him trying to sound maternal. Being over ten years younger than he and still having the bearing of an excitable teenager did not lend much credibility to her case. That's... oh, I forgot what the technical term is. I think the term you're looking for is bullshit. Adele winked at Sarah, then dodged out of the way as the stately Frenchman pushed his way past her, heading straight for the dancer. Yeah, that's it. I think you can say that only because you have never been to a Peter Riley petit shot. The man who would be Poirot arrived next to the guitarist, creating a hell of a comic tableau. He, a six-foot-three bear of a man. She, a willowy five-foot-two with limbs as long as an octopus's. Next to one another, they looked like refugees from a funhouse. What song were you playing? Oh, just futzing around with some old Scots tunes. It sounded lovely. A good welcome. The large man gathered her gently in his arms and kissed her cheek. Sarah's face flushed as she returned the embrace. And your year, Sarah, dear, how was it? He let her go and stood beside her like a beefeater, not leaning against the counter. It's been fantastic. As she tittered, Amos pulled a clean towel off the rack, rolled it up in a ball, and threw it. I think we finally got a show that... Hey! The flying towel caught on her guitar neck. Now, now. Amos waggled a finger at her. Before you both go getting all cozy, aren't you going to introduce us to your new friend? Oh, of course. Sorry. Though technically, you're the new friend, Shana. Sarah squinted slyly, like a cat blackmailing a fishmonger. Of course, she would go there, right at the beginning. That was the kind of thing Sarah would do. Christ, this was going to be a long ten days. Amos held on to the thin hope that it would be the good kind of long, rather than the purgatorial kind of long. The auspices were still ambiguous on that point. Garrett Falkstein, this is Amos Maple. Garrett raised both eyebrows, clearly impressed. Amos Maple? Of the serious station books? 
Guilty as charged. Amos raised his stout and salute and indulged himself in the dark brown nuttiness again. Amos has a secret life. Sarah leaned conspiratorially towards Garrett and delivered the news in a stage whisper. He funds his science fiction habit by writing Harlequins as a woman. It's true. Soccer moms think I'm sexier in drag. Amos shrugged apologetically, determined to roll with the playful teasing and give as good as he got. Gerd nodded his head magnanimously. I give you my solemn promise. I will not tell anyone who doesn't offer me a lot of money for the quote. And this is Adele Sirhan. She's our missionary photographer. Delighted. Gerd nodded his head curtly. Gerd here is the soon-to-be ex-chair of ancient history at UNLV. Apparently satisfied that she'd done her social duty for the day, Sarah pulled the towel off her guitar neck and started picking softly again. Soon-to-be ex? Adele gave Garrett a wry look that belied the authority underneath her cross-examination. She commanded whatever room she was in, or had every time Amos had seen her, until she came here. She was like a little black hole, potent because she was small, pulling people into her orbit almost against their will. Here, she was a singularity dancing in orbit with a host of other singularities. Whether the entire situation would, in the end, suck remained to be seen, but her ease of manner as she demanded an explanation from Garrett with a wrinkle of her brow was quite a sight. Amos took mental notes, intending to use the moment in his next book. Oh, she exaggerates. It's not that bad. I just ruffled some feathers last month when... It's scandalous, I tell you. Behave, Cherie. I'll have Carol see to you. He turned his attention back to Adele, stepped towards her, and took her free hand. I'm very pleased to meet you, Adele. He raised her hand to his lips and kissed it gently, then let it go. Oh, pfft, don't give me that. She stepped up to him and gave him a welcoming hug. Carol met them both at Worldcon a few years ago and finally decided to have them up. Sarah resumed her picking. Gerd released Adele. Just don't tell them everything at once or we might scare them off. And I'm looking forward to having both of them around. She raised an eyebrow mysteriously. Amos stifled a snicker. Somehow I think you're not being quite truthful, speaking of what you want to have, Miss Boone. Gerd returned the eyebrow and raised her a chiding headshake. Oh, shut up, you old lech. She snatched the hand towel Amos had thrown at her the moment before and lobbed it at Gerd, landing it squarely atop his head. Gerd snatched it off and made as if he was shocked. You mean to say they do not know? Shh. You want to spoil all the surprises? Amos, unable to hold back anymore, chuckled into his pint glass. Such melodrama. Carol didn't tell me you had that talent. He knocked back a swallow, then continued. <sighs> Maybe I ought to sub out some of my romance novel business to you. Nope, couldn't do it. One true love doesn't work for me. <laughs> you and almost everyone in the world. Be reasonable. Not everyone is so cynical. Of course. Amos widened his eyes in mock epiphany. That's why most marriages are happy and well-adjusted. I knew I was missing something. People aren't perfect, Amos. That doesn't mean love is meaningless. Love is wonderful. One true love is Disney. Just because you haven't had good luck. Believe it or not, some people do find the one they're destined for. An idealist? How romantic! Oh, please. Most people want the same thing. Someone they can love and depend on. Adele slid the last of her chopping onto a serving tray. Children! Carol's voice carried sharply from the other room. Children, don't make me ring the bell. I believe that is our cue, my friends. Gerd nodded past Amos towards the living room door. Okay, everyone. Adele hefted a tray laden heavily with hors d'oeuvres. Grab a tray, make your way.
You've been listening to Episode 1 of Down From 10, written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer, with original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. Starring T. Morris as Amos Maple, Philippa Ballantyne as Carol Lewis, Nathan Lowell as Gerd Falkstein, Miss Callender as Sarah Evans, Kitty Nakian as Katie Sato, Nobilis Reed as Kevin Walden, Chris Lester as Jeremiah Evans, and Christiana Ellis as Adele Surhan. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2009, Kitty Nakian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook is recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 2009, J. Daniel Sawyer, based on a screenplay copyright 2008, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2009, Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.5 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author.